probably like all of my colleagues um, joined Facebook groups for international development, poverty, conflict, whatever. Um, looking what's going on and I've seen an ad, um, a post um, looking for research assistance um, and here I am now. <laughs> I actually can't remember um, the first moment that I like came across you Cameron or, or ITS uh, for that matter. I actually genuinely can't remember, I was trying to think about it now. But much along the same sort of line, I was looking for all things international relations. Um, I must have found it on social media uh, and I just fired off an email to you Cameron without ever speaking to you and I was like yo here's my CV I like international relations let's talk basically I just joined ITS in November um, I just graduated from college in May there's I don't know really nothing exciting I'm not an interesting person that's a lie <laughs> I love that that's such a lie um, so I um, have been involved with the International Scholar since winter 2018. Then I came back on for the relaunch um, last year, or this 2020. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> what, what year are we in? Uh, <laughs> uh, I think we had a, a decade. I mean, yeah. I th I'm pretty sure you can say the last decade, right? Because At some point in the last decade, I came back to the International Scholar. <laughs> Maybe you should introduce me to the viewers. And what do you have to say about me? <laughs> to my face. <laughs> Silence. Intimidation. I, I, I looked. I, I looked. I, I stopped paying attention for two seconds to send a text message, and I come back, and I have no idea what you're saying. <laughs> uh, that sounds like a cop out to me. How would you? Uh, how would you fair. introduce me to the world, Scott? Um, my internet's actually not working very well for me. <laughs> <laughs> I have an emergency at the moment, so I gotta run. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I just realized I can't do this podcast today. We'll talk later. Bye. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of The World in Perspective, a podcast by the International Scholar. I am your host, Cameron Vasquez, founder, uh, editor-in-chief, and joining me today from the UK are, well, there's multiple people in multiple undisclosed locations, so <laughs> <laughs> this one is disclosed. In uh, London, we have Anita Pavitz uh, in Gibraltar, holed up in his uh, apartment, kind of waiting for the day when the Schengen zone allows him to travel freely so that he can continue to stay bunkered as COVID disappears is Scott Cipollina. <laughs> um, and then joining us from somewhere in Massachusetts is Diana Roy. And then returning again to our podcast is Liam Kraft uh, in, his, in his very classy Connecticut uh, home, um, sipping water. I Hi, guys. Am. You guys excited for the podcast? Yeah. <laughs> very first episode of our podcast we're very excited to bring you this um we're going to take you around the world over the course of the next several weeks all throughout 2021 and then beyond um to discuss the ever-evolving uh sort of situations issues that are um you know of major import or under uh, sort of overlooked underlooked i'm not sure <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, overlooked in the 21st century, sort of tease out fresh perspectives, critical analyses, and innovative solutions to all these kind of issues and problems around the world. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourselves? Um, Anita, why don't we start with you? Just so that the listeners kind of know who you are. I know you're going to begrudge me picking you first <laughs> like, for the rest of your life. I'm like, why me? Yeah, I'm currently um, living in London. Um, well, outside London, but let's say London. Um, I'm working in an NGO. Um, and I joined the International Scholar, I think, November last year. I'm not sure. Um, and I, I even think that I literally changed the accent now. I don't know. Do I sound a bit British now? Because I'm not British. Um, but yeah, that's that's me, I guess. So you're not British. Where are you? I am Croatian. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Still in European Union. <laughs> well, outside the European Union at the moment, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You personally. But I can move. <laughs> I can move freely. <laughs> All right. Also someone who's excited to move freely. Scott, why don't you introduce yourself to those? <laughs> Thank you for that, Cameron. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay. So um, I'm from Gibraltar. Um, I live in London, although I'm not currently in London. Uh, I managed to make it home uh, a while ago uh, before London sort of went up in flames with COVID again. Uh, and I'm stranded in Gibraltar. So all, all this news that you may have been reading about Gibraltar embracing free movement the schengen zone it's all a lie it's all been derailed by a pandemic um <laughs> but um yeah so I, I moved to london in 2019 uh i'm a journalist there now and i've been affiliated with the international scholar and i've known cameron since what must be 2018 now earlier to early 2018 even potentially cameron do you know the exact yeah. thing Yes, I have it um, tattooed on my wrist. Yeah, I, I was, was just about to this. say, do you, have, like, do you guys have like anniversary or something? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what, what is we've been day? trying to keep it quiet all this time. But, I have um, it hanging up yeah, on my For all of you on our bit. first episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we've ever actually, we've never met in person though. No, that's true. Yeah. That's quite, yeah. That is, actually, I've never met any of you in person. I'm just come to realize as an international think tank we do that we're really international um yes we're so international we we don't even know what each other really looks like <laughs> this could all be projection um projecting from <laughs> his beautiful house <laughs> liam why don't you introduce everyone reduce introduce yourself to everybody hi yeah um so i'm uh i'm liam Kraft. i'm the director of the u.s foreign policy program at its we think that i've been at ITS since like, late okay, 2018, but it, it was, give or take. It was really, no, no, no. I think pretty, I'm pretty sure it was late 2017. And then it was like really properly in the winter of 2018 that you got started. Well, we'll have to, we'll have to fact check that one. Okay. I, as, yeah. as many things do need in this age. <laughs> <laughs> um, as Cameron mentioned, I'm uh, from Connecticut, still here. Uh, and I work at a, uh, a global nonprofit that's New York based um, in addition to what I do at the International Scholar. Which is kind of looking at the grand strategy of the US foreign policy um, and kind of analyzing all of the new and upcoming trends and threats in the toolbox. It's all in the uh, Global Policy Wonk, which is our periodical renamed and rebranded right. for a new 
new year new pod <laughs> we should tweet we should uh tweet that out new year new periodical um <laughs> new year new look all right uh also looking sort of bewildered at that statement from <laughs> some undisclosed location <laughs> in massachusetts we have editor and my executive assistant diana roy why don't you introduce <laughs> yourself to the universe oh god Hello, um, my name is Diana. I am currently in central Massachusetts. Don't need to tell everyone exactly where. Um, but <laughs> as Cameron said, I'm an editor and executive assistant, and I've only been with the International Scholar for, I think, since early November of last year. Um, but I've done a lot in that short time, and I'm very, very excited to kind of help with the creation and, you know, publication of everything kind of going forward this year. And I'm very excited to start my podcast debut, so. <laughs> All right. So, I mean, 2020, guys. You, <laughs> just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a little quick question at you. What, why don't you guys give me, in five words or less, 2020 in a nutshell? Five words each? Anyone or... five, no, five words. Yeah, each of you. Five words or less. What was 2020? Chaotic. <laughs> Oh God, this Feels is... like it's still going on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think Liam wins, but I think Neil. I think Liam has hit the nail on the head. To be honest, you can't top that. Feels like it hasn't finished at all. Yeah, yeah, true. But if you had to finish it, being the journalist you are, <laughs> <laughs> chaotic is a good word. Um, depressing would be my word. Um, I think mm. it's it. It yeah didn't do anybody any favors. Let's say depressing. That would be the word I'd go for. I'm I'm really conflicted because like I personally No, that was perfect. I am really conflicted. <laughs> Five words or less. That's four. That's personally. good. That's so perfect. I'm <laughs> I, I'm really I'm so conflicted. Um <laughs> I think that must have been like Earth's, you know, answer. Yeah. I am really conflicted. Yeah. My five words um are person, woman, man, camera, TV. <laughs> because as insane as 2020 was you kind of have to look at i mean some of it you just can't laugh at but the rest of it there's nothing else you can do to be honest mm -hmm. it's just been absolute insanity um <laughs> it's like you lit a dumpster on fire threw it over a cliff and it landed right in the middle of the white house um so i'm just gonna leave it right there for that bit <laughs> But speaking about uh, COVID-19 and this, uh, this mysterious pandemic that Scott spoke of, um, <laughs> I think really the, the word to describe 2020 has got to be COVID-19, if that counts as one word. Mm. Um, yeah. But there's been a lot of misinformation throughout the entire year about what COVID-19 is, how dangerous it is. And now we're moving into 2021 with, I think we can credibly say sort of like round two, this is level two, we've got a new variant out in the UK that's extremely e much more easy to catch. I think it's like Boris Johnson in his uh, speech the other day said it was 50 to 70% more yeah. uh, contagious. So Scott, why don't you take us through what you think this means Yeah, moving um, forward? Well, I think that the great, I mean, other than the actual disease itself, the greatest challenge that faces people out of COVID-19 is misinformation. Um, I've been looking keenly at the impact of misinformation throughout the year, throughout the whole pandemic. Um, and obviously misinformation is nothing new. Uh, we see it in politics pretty much every day. We see it in other walks of life, but um, I think we can all agree that it, it doesn't often result in 
it's not an exaggeration to say potentially deadly consequences for people um mm. and that's that's something that i've been really keen on sort of looking into throughout the year um and what one thing i'm particularly sort of like troubled by is how deep this era of misinformation has sort of penetrated society because obviously we can all point to claims that we can falsify from the highest offices around the world from from the white house and from number 10 in the uk and other other established democracies that may have been getting things wrong or, or reporting things inaccurately about covid but um something that i've found while i've been sort of casting an eye on this issue for the throughout the duration of the pandemic is that a lot of smaller media outlets or 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 popular commentators let's say social media influencers um on social media places like twitter instagram facebook whatever um the impact that they've had uh i recall just one one example that i'll that i'll give people a name that people likely don't know uh his name is dr david samadi and he actually used to be um a former employee at fox news and he's a certified urologist so he's a he's a medical professional um far from me to disagree with the medical professional but what he said has really been widely discredited by every other medical professional so i feel like i can do it um he tweeted at one point that uh wearing face masks and social distancing isn't necessary for people that are asymptomatic carriers of covid19 and that tweet i i i tracked its engagement this is just one small specific example to to sort of bring to life what i'm talking about that was retweeted over 12,000 times in a two-day period um wow and yeah it, it's the sort of thing that we talk about misinformation and we talk about the the role of social media platforms in in today's world and the responsibility that people like myself as a journalist or, or just regular members of the public because frankly anybody these days can can have a, a significant platform what responsibility we've got to make sure that what we discuss especially for something that is as serious as a pandemic what obligations should we have either ethically or even potentially above ethics to get things like this right um and that's something that i think we need to learn a little bit more about we need to equip people to understand how to spot misinformation particularly about um covid-19 as well and to do this one thing that i that i looked into was twitter because twitter i think is has been sort of the hotbed for misinformation surrounding covid at least on the on the mainstream level there are all these other sort of social media websites that are a little bit fringe etc but everything sort of culminates on twitter and i had a look uh in april of this year which is now like a, a month or so after the uk went into lockdown for the first time they had updated their rules um for basically consumer protection so things that would protect people from harm things that would protect people from from medical misadvice uh, and I tried to find how often they were reporting accounts that, or rather taking action against reported accounts that were peddling the sort of misinformation. And I found that they were, based on the most frequent records that I could find at the time, this was towards the end of um, the summer, say September, um, I found that they were deleting about 70 70 to 80 tweets per day. This is across the entire website um, of reported accounts that were misleading or sharing misleading information about covid um so it's the sort of situation that i think is like it's proliferated we've lost control about this completely um and it's not just people that are on social media or people that are you know 
private citizens that say they're not affiliated to any to any organization they're not journalists not politicians there are also politicians that are doing this that go beyond you know trump or go beyond boris johnson um mm. one example of this is uh there's a website called oann one american news network which uh, I'm, I'm sure that yeah we most people have heard of that <laughs> if not um it's sort of like fox news on steroids i think is how the popular explanation <laughs> about that would 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 define it um and one thing that i found about uh, the OAN uh, network is that they had been sharing straight up conspiracy theories uh, from an alleged scientist whose name was Nikolai Petrovsky. Turns out he's not a scientist. Uh, turns out he didn't conduct the medical um, um, experiments that he claimed that he had carried out, which said that the fight against coronavirus was over um, and that we should be taking hydroxychloroquine, which is a, a drug that was at one point peddled as a as a, a solution or a cure to COVID-19 back in June, the FDA in America removed its its sort of emer- emergency license, basically, to authorization, authorization yeah. to make sure that people shouldn't be taking this because there is actually no real medical backing behind it. Um, OANN was basically peddling this well after that authorization was revoked. And it turns out that the, net, the network's founder, Robert Herring, has donated thousands of dollars to the Republican Party of San Diego. Um, so the political linkages, at least in the States, which is where a lot of my research has sort of taken place, it, it goes really deep to state level, regional levels, local levels. Um, so really on the surface, I'll cut this off, people see what they consider to be fake news from the highest levels of office, but the problem has permeated all walks of life, I would say. And really we've lost control of it. It's something that I hope we see a bit of an improvement on in 2021. We've definitely lost control of a lot of things, um, or at least lost track of how deep in they go. And so it's kind of, I mean, it's nice to hear, like, well, I say nice, um, but it's its interesting to hear, <laughs> um, you know, the the very complex nature of a lot of the sort of misinformation that goes around these days. It gets remixed, reused, reformulated, um, and something that I've noticed uh, quite often, I mean, just looking at the U.S. political scene over the last four and a half years has been just how resilient certain political sort of ideas become um, to the point where they, they, they sort of become their own dogma and anything that, that sort of enters is filtered through that dogma to make sense um, with some, some sort of prior um, you know, belief system within that. You know, you see it in, in things like clips from uh, even comedians, like you have uh, Trevor Noah's you know, show um, and they go around uh, interviewing people at Trump rallies and, you know, you tell them, you know, but, you know, you'd be upset if he was, you know, like trying to block witnesses and stuff like that, you know, for the hearings and stuff like, oh, yeah, but he, if he was doing that kind of stuff, that would bother me. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're completely unaware that he is doing that. Um, yeah. And so that would show he has something to hide. Right. And then he goes, yeah, yeah, no, that would. But, you know, he said, you know, show him everything and said, well, you know, Trump is blocking witnesses. And you know, this particular person got a funny look on their face for a half second and then went, well, I don't care. Right. Like it's, it's that kind of, it's that kind of, it doesn't really matter. There's no particular logical reasoning to it. It's anything that comes in gets filtered through. And I think that's perhaps more virulent and more dangerous than any virus uh, can be because it has the impact 
um, on the virus. You know, anything that that sort of Trump says or that, you know, particular kind of trusted, you know, Trumpian loyalist political commentators might say, you know, it gets filled, whatever they say becomes sort of the the word and then everything gets filtered through that. Um, And you see the effects on the ground, right? I mean, Diana and Liam, I mean, what do you think about? I mean, you're also sitting in the United States today um, and thinking about these things um, as we approach Biden's inauguration day. Um, what are you guys thinking about, you know, when it comes to sort of the misinformation, the political dogma, and what does that kind of mean as Biden takes office? Well, I think, um, I mean, to, to just to build on that point, I think, like, it, it, it seems awfully like kind of a radicalization of the American population, almost, that, you know, if you look at kind of the, the, what it looks like to be radicalized in terms of kind of um, taking up these kind of rigid belief systems that, you know, like you said, filter everything that every piece of information that they receive. Um, it's seems to me like a pretty kind of intractable issue to, to kind of get through to people that don't have any, you know, shred of common kind of sense of, you know, what information is reliable versus what information is just kind of, you know, manipulated or um, fake or what have you. Um, I think that that's really concerning to me. Um, And I don't know, I don't see a clear way. What's even more concerning to me is I don't really see a clear way of resolving that in the short term um, without you know, some sort of change uh, with regard to, you know, how social media works, how, um, you know, I I, I don't know, there's something, it it just doesn't seem like there's an actual path to, like, de-radicalize those segments of the population. I don't know if you all disagree, but it's, and if you don't, you know, if you don't have that, then there's obviously clear implications in terms of like the political situation in the U.S. Um, You, you know, open the door for, you know, even more extreme kind of types of leaders to come in um, than than Trump. I mean, it's it's an open debate whether or not someone can go in and, you know, come in and do the same thing that Trump did in 2016 and win. But you know, I do think there's a risk of, you know, normalization of that kind of, um, of that kind of behavior. Um, and then, you know, you do, there's the whole, you know, worry, you know, what, what happens when you have someone who has Trump, Trump's kind of inclinations, but is, you know, a bit more competent, a little bit less focus on, um, you know, a little bit more coherent, um, and that kind of thing. So I think that it's, definitely dangerous waters in the u.s kind of political landscape and the misinformation piece is is deeply tied into that well going off of what liam said like in terms of how trump has approached responding to like experts calls for hey you should do this or you know we need to enter a national lockdown it's percolated like far outside of just the united states so his supporters in particularly Latin American countries like Bolsonaro and Brazil, like they're really spewing this anti-expert, anti-mask, anti-lockdown rhetoric that Mm -hmm. is dangerously impacting their populations. And 
they feel emboldened because Trump's actions and the way that he's getting away with a lot of this stuff in a way that a lot of people, as Cameron mentioned, are still supporting that, despite the fact that you have scientists and experts and public health officials, you know, warning against this, are emboldening those far right leaders who see this, and especially for it being the United States, see this as, you know, a sign that, hey, we can continue and we can get away with this as, you know, mm. as well, because we are higher up in the government as, you know, the top government officials. And because Trump is doing this and his supporters still are rallying around the flag for him, like we can also get away with it. Um, but that really, you know, endangers populations around the world, not just the United States, but in countries whose leaders are also kind of following in the same path that Trump did and, you know, really embracing that anti-expert rhetoric that is then percolating online and contributing to those misinformation campaigns that Scott mentioned. Yeah, and just Sorry, to, on, and just to, yeah, just to build on that a little bit, you know, like, you know, one thing that I thought about, you know, when Trump was elected was, okay, what, you know, when someone like that gets elected, you know, the kind of thing that would convince people that that was a bad idea is you get some sort of crisis and then you see what it's like to have someone like Trump in, in the position of power to manage, you know, to essentially lead through a crisis like that. The problem is, and so theoretically, there would be a constraint there, you know, if he were to fail, then people would kind of come to their senses and see that that kind of leader is not the right person um, to, you know, give the reins. The problem is because of misinformation on social media, I don't think that constraint exists because I don't think people grasp the depths of, of the Trump administration's failure on, on COVID, mm-hmm. um, or at least some, some you know, percentage of the population doesn't. You know, you've got some percentage who thinks that he's handled it, you know, beautifully, some percentage who thinks, you know, he's had, you know, hasn't done it well, but, you know, his critics are probably, you know, biased and, you know, all that. And so I don't know if the, like, the accountability mechanism is actually there um, to say, okay, we don't want that anymore. You know, I think, I think in the middle, I think the in the middle um, of the you know, American politics, you, you've got that. I mean, Biden won the election. Um, but for a certain lar- kind of concerningly large portion of the population, I don't know if there's just kind of a lesson learned Well, I think there. we can even chalk a lot of this up. I mean, you're right. I agree with you 100%. But I do see, like, when you were talking about earlier, there's no, there doesn't seem to be a mechanism to, like, overcome this. I agree with you provisionally in that Right now, there doesn't exist any such mechanism because American politics, as they stand now and as they stood right before the COVID-19 crisis kicked up, it's it's my team versus your team, red team versus blue team for too much of America, right? There's plenty of America that's just like, oh, I hate this. I want this to get over with, right? And, you know, just, just in talking to people around here in the Midwest, um, of course, I'm in Ohio, um, you know, you see people, if you say to anyone with, with no prior context on what kind of political color you have, um, you know, I wish people would just get along. Um, and I'm excited to kind of, I, I want to see Americans work together. I don't think there's ever been a challenge that America couldn't overcome when it worked together, right? You say those words, everyone goes, yeah, I agree with that 100%. You yeah. see, and they're like, I've had response, visceral responses from people who, I mean, I live in a very sort of Republican dominated area, very conservative, reliably voted for Trump in both the 2016 and the 2020 elections. And you still see this kind of reaction, right, where they're like, yes, I 100% agree. Like, the 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 lack of patriotism isn't there. It's just that it's become so polarized yeah. that everything is filtered through 
is it my fault or is it your fault? And it's always, no, it's yeah. your fault. It's your team. You're destroying America, right? Like, this is your fault. And I don't want to, to get too sort of, well, there's both sides to every question here. There's no, undoubtedly, at, at the present moment, there's been clear damage done um, from one side more than another. But there's also plenty of sort of urban type liberals and progressives who are so passionate about what they want to change and want to move at a faster pace than a lot of the rest of America appears ready to move, that they're also not listening. Um, and they'll paint all of sort of the conservative world with the same brush. And it's just mm -hmm. not that way. Um, and so I think until you get to a point where you either have a less polarized American public, and that's why I think Biden of all of the de Democratic candidates is perhaps best poised to reunite America um, is until you get to that point, either you have a less polarized public or you have a more, you have more polls, if you will, in the political spectrum. In other words, a multi-party system that functions efficiently, you're not going to see that kind of, well, hang on, maybe there's more nuance to this question, right? Right now it's my team, your team, and duking it out and who has the most seats and who has the most, you know, accomplishments this year and then you know who's won the last battle and then you know who's winning the next one and who got one up on who right you know i i have international friends here that are that are sort of progressive of themselves and they're like well i saw you know nancy pelosi really outwit outwitted uh mitch mcconnell the other day and i like that it's like but that's not the point right yeah <laughs> that's not the point the point is what happens then right what what is it doing to advance the interest of the united states so, I mean, I think we're going to continue to see this kind of craziness and polarization, um, at least in the public sphere and um, with the politics. I mean, you've definitely seen no shortage of scandal with the, I think we can't pass up the moment to mention the, the transcript of the call with <laughs> public officials in Georgia that was re released uh, three days ago. Um, but, you know, it's it's going to continue to be this kind of chaos, at least on the, the domestic political scene, I think, for a little while longer. Hopefully, you know, with the transition and sort of a new clear message overriding and maybe some bipartisanship um, on the part of the Biden team and, and um, you know, the more, um, shall we say, center-right elements of the Republican Party, perhaps some of that f falls away to the background, but I don't think it's going to disappear anytime soon. But... What do you think? It, I mean, I'm going to pose the question to our, our director of the U.S. foreign policy program. <laughs> um, what do you think this really means for for Biden's chances um, as he moves forward? I mean, world leaders are watching Donald Trump's sort of flailing last moments in office. Um, and, you know, there's been an argument on all sides, kind of, are they seeing this as like the last throes of a challenge that America has overcome? Or is this a concerning element kind of that that the rest of the world is going to have to continue to kind of watch America carefully. I think it's definitely the latter. I mean, I, I think, um, I think the, the domestic political situation, um, is definitely a constraint, uh, on us foreign policy. I, I, I think, um, you know, in one of the articles I wrote earlier last year, um, for the international scholar, one of the things that I, um, thought was important was, uh, you know, basically, you know, you don't need, um, you know, you don't need bipartisan consensus on every single issue, but you do need a minimum, sort of a minimum level of, 
of cooperation between the parties that recognizes, um, at least has some kind of shared notion of, you know, what the national interests are and kind of, um, I don't see the, the dividing lines between, you know, the whole idea of let, you know, minimizing how much domestic politics kind of influences, um, U S foreign policy. I think that, um, I think that that's kind of a, not going to hold even under a Biden administration. I do think, I mean, I think that there are certain ways that, you know, the Biden administration will certainly be welcomed on the international stage. I mean, obviously the, the, the foreign policy will, will have some pretty significant differences. Um, but I do think that there's going to, going to need to be a little bit of a, I don't know if humility is the right word, but kind of a recognition that, you know, as other governments, um, work with us, negotiate with us, et cetera. Um, you know, you can't really point to, um, long-term assurances that policies will, at least policies that are done by executive order, um, you know, there's kind of a reversibility aspect, you know, that's, that's one of the main lessons I think of the Trump administration is, um, you know, a lot of the things that Obama did, you know, Paris, um, others, you know, were pretty easily discarded um, by the Trump administration. And so if I'm a foreign government, I would... Why should we trust um, your word if you can't get your Congress behind it? Yeah, yeah. And I think that there's some issues. I think there's definitely some issues where, um, where that's more of an issue than others. I think, you know, like, um, I, I mean, I particularly worried about like how that affects negotiations with adversaries. I don't think that, um, you know, I don't think that that kind of volatility leads, lends itself to a strong negotiating position. Um, and so I think that that's an issue. I think, you know, there's some, there's some issues where, you know, <laughs> hesitate to use the, the whole deep phrase, deep state phrase, but, you know, I think there's some issues where, you know, institutions of, of government will be able to kind of continue pressing on, um, you know, regardless of the administration. Um, but, uh, I think there's still, there's still limits to that. So yeah, it's definitely, I I mean, I think it's among the, the very, very top things that I'm concerned about in terms of being able to actually do foreign policy well in in the United States. I, I think that the domestic situation is, is like one of the top, top, um, constraints now, in my opinion. For sure. I, I would, I honestly, I, I just had this thought. It's, it's never been so much of a deep state. Deep state does make it sound like it's sort of nefarious and hiding in the background in some woods somewhere. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and just constantly working behind the scenes, working behind the scenes is right for sure. And that's where a lot of the actual work gets done, right? It's not at the, uh, the press conference that all of the, the, the work leading up to the press conference and announcing what's been done happened it was all of the meetings with the advisors and with the policy you know uh, staff um that got all of the the work done um it's more like the solid state if you will maybe in some cases more of a semi-solid state but right like this is the element of government that doesn't functionally change as much um it's definitely been shaken quite a lot i mean in some cases upended um under the trump administration but you do see kind of a sort of continuity between the um the quality of work or the, at least the intent of the work um 
across different departments. You know, you had numerous State Department officials who were unwilling um, to undertake things that were, you know, quite clearly against the the interests of ourselves and our allies or both at the same time. And you had this sort of massive purge from the State Department, which was not as um, ideal, right? But uh, it's the kind of thing from between Bush and Obama and in and, and, and many, many transitions before then, you had lots of staff that, that had worked under presidents of both stripes. Um, you know, you take a prime example, you've got, um, you know, Dr. Fauci, who's worked under seven, the last seven presidents, um, and is still working, going to work under Biden's a team, right? Even under the most polarizing president, he, he still worked with competency and said, no, I'm, I'm sorry, this is what we know in terms of facts. And this is, uh, this is what I'm willing to say. Um, and in questions where it really fell against uh, the the line of the White House, you know, he said, you know, I'll refer you to the White House on that as much as, uh, you know, he felt was responsible um, to do so. But what do you think, Diana? I mean, we've talked a lot about sort of the internal workings of uh, grand strategy and the foreign policy of, of, of the United States being sort of unstable or, or at least less reliable in the future, but what do you think this actually means for the expression of Latin America, especially in sort of the hemisphere? Well, I think that Biden has a lot to focus on, you know, outside of the United States, just in terms of like the continued rise of China and, you know, concerns about the future of the European Union and U.S.-Russian relations and all that. But I think that Latin America has largely been ignored in the past four years under Trump or has been the victim of a lot of you know, increasingly negative rhetoric, you know, calling Mexicans rapists and just generally a lack of nurturing in terms of, you know, U.S. relationships with Latin American countries. And I think that Biden particularly is very well poised to kind of bring about change in U.S. relations, like U.S. relationships with countries um, in Latin America because he has such a greater understanding of hemispheric affairs as compared to Trump and, you know, numerous presidents before him. And I think that not Latin to mention America, his cabinet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He has a much more diverse cabinet that has a lot greater experience in the region than, you know, Trump had put together overall in the last four years. And I think that Latin America has numerous, you know, economic and political and social and health crises going on simultaneously. And Biden is in a great situation where he can really work to nurture and rebuild like United States relationships with these countries, particularly those like, you know, hit hardest by the pandemic and whose health, public health systems are failing. And, you know, you have climate disasters that um, hit certain countries like in Central America. And, you know, we, there's a lot that Biden's administration could do to address the region. What what are some of those things? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely curious. My focus is a lot, most of the time it's on sort of transatlantic relationship um, and sort of what's going on in, in EU and American politics. Um, but I don't as much look at the, the you know, southern relationships that we do have um, in the hemisphere, which are, you know, of equal or greater import uh, more often, um, especially as Latin America continues to develop and continues to rise. But, you know, um, I have down on my notes, um, you know, something about an economic hangover, which sounds a lot more fun than I imagine it is. Um, <laughs> sounds like maybe you had a great time and went out and spent all your money and <laughs> now you don't have uh, cash for waffles in the morning or something. But Not quite that hangover. <laughs> not, not quite the same kind of hangover, but um, 
Talk to us a little bit about that and the ways that like perhaps the Biden team could help to address that in more specific ways. Like, I mean, you've got Venezuela. That's a whole different question. But countries like Argentina and and repairing ties with Mexico and, and sort of shoring up um, our relationships throughout you know South America. Yeah, so essentially the economic hangover, Latin America in general is on track to or was on track and is still on track for like a very sharp contraction. Um, and this economic hangover is essentially the result of how badly these countries were hit by the pandemic. So a lot of them were grossly unprepared um, or underprepared in terms of how their public health systems were able to respond to the pandemic. And then you have certain countries like Mexico and Brazil, whose you know presidents were adopting a Trump-like stance in terms of treating the pandemic and were very much anti-expert, anti-mask, anti-lockdown. And they were kind of floating, they were flouting themselves out and about, you know, still greeting people, not really wearing masks. Mm-hmm. And that whole, that whole type of behavior, you know, was not only endangering their citizens, but was really setting the country on track to be hit hardest by the ramifications of the pandemic in terms of people, you know, grossly high unemployment um, and just poor economic relations with countries around them who were nervous about the way that they were reacting socially to the pandemic and to the proliferation of the virus on not only a social sphere, but also economically and politically. And all of those mixed together really created a cocktail, I would say, of just, I would just, essentially those countries were, you know, hit the hardest, but there's ways that Biden specifically could develop more multilateral, you know, policies and, you know, treaties with these countries to help them. So, for example, in Mexico, there's been a huge proliferation of e-commerce, um, by China investing in the country and really setting themselves up to help the Mexican economy specifically grow. And so that is something that I would definitely want to keep an eye on this year as you know we move forward because China really asserting themselves in Mexico as an economic trade partner is something that the United States should be keeping a close eye on because we don't necessarily have the best economic ties with Mexico, specifically in regards to how we've been treating them under the past four years of Trump. Um, and how we've really focused on exclusionary policies when it comes to migrants and, you know, just Mexican-American workers and Mexican workers in general. And, you know, all of that together is incredibly interesting, but also just another way in which Biden could really, you know, set U.S.-Mexico relations in specific back on track, um, you know, amidst a slew of other things that he could really do to bolster Latin American engagement and relationships with the United States. Speaking of China and U.S. foreign policy, um, and also swinging back across the Atlantic, um, we've got, oh my gosh, so many things happening in Europe all at once. It seems like you guys go through waves, like nothing is happening for a very long time on some subject, and then you guys all, like, sort of the the moon and stars align all just right, (laughs) and then you've got Brexit sort of properly finalized now, if you will. Um, just oh, recently you passed. <laughs> right, but yeah, I mean, it is <laughs> I'm always nervous, like something else will crop up and we'll still be dealing with some question about it until, you know, mm. two, 2100, right? And the, the British Prime Minister's still flying over to Brussels to talk about something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I personally can't quite believe it's over, <laughs> even though it is, right? But you've got Brexit's finalized now. Um, and then back in summer, you guys signed, um, the European Union, that is, signed the biggest um, sort of collective 
spending decision, right, um, around COVID relief. Um, and that was momentous occasion, especially for sort of the integration of the European Union as a political and economic bloc. Um, sort of making this agreement took locking everybody in a room, essentially, for multiple days straight. But like right after that momentous decision, you had Brexit happen just recently. And then you've also got um, something else that might kind of strain EU-US ties, which is the the uh, decision to uh, start the, what, what, what do I have this called here, the, the critical strategic dialogue. I mean, everything's now a critical strategic something, isn't it? Um, you've got the uh, comprehensive agreement on investment between the EU and China that's happening now. And of course, being close trading, well, close trading partners without a proper free trade agreement, the EU and the US um, kind of sets it up poorly to to kind of overcome the the tariffs and the the sort of trade war, manufactured trade war and manufacturing trade war between uh, EU and the US over the last couple of years. So Anita, what do you think that kind of means for the future of both the relationship with the EU and the US as well as, you know, Britain. Um, I mean, it's all happening all at once. Take it, take any or all of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there is really a lot of things going on. Um, but obviously the the most, I think that the thing that obviously is closest to me is Brexit. Um, and I think that all the agreements um, that have been made, obviously, with the European Union, they don't apply to us. <laughs> so um, I've seen recently that um, there were some um, some international companies, um, they couldn't import goods within to the UK, essentially, um, because of the new taxation law. Um, so I'm, I'm really not sure how's that gonna play out, if that's gonna be something, I mean, I'm trying to be optimistic just because I live in the country and I'm hoping that nothing is gonna just like literally fall down and then just destroy everything. Um, but I do think that it's gonna be a bumpy road ahead, um, now after the Brexit, obviously. Um, the transition is going to be, and it is painful, um, on many levels. Um, what it, what, what actually is the most interesting bit I think about Brexit is again, that change of opinions, um, in people, in general public. So when Brexit idea just came, um, the left left party was pro brexit because that was more aligned um with the you know left uh, kind of ideology um but then as you know all the things have been discussed and um there were many changes within the society um that resulted at the end that the left um oriented kind of parties and and supporters are pro pro um staying in and uh they want to stay in the in the EU however the right guys are saying no um and it's just interesting to see that um there are bits and pieces that you think okay well free trade that is something that is um that should be kind of like 
um, really interesting to um, right-oriented, um, you know, to right spectrum. Um, conservative, conservative exactly, center right, center left, exactly, right? Exactly, yeah. Um, but then, you know, that kind of like, it was like, okay, do we want that? Or do we want maybe like this? What about this all this immigration that comes with it? Um, we have too many people coming in the, in the country. You have to fix that. And, and I, I'm not really sure how they kind of like weighted uh, pros and cons and how on earth they thought that leaving would be a better option. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, I think that... Um, and this again all comes down back to polarization in the society and like how strong how strong our opinions are like we are so each one of us is really opinionated even if we don't want to admit it all of us are um and i think that that is just maybe something that comes with our generations i'm not sure um social media i'm not sure possibly um but the thing is that when the misinformation either about brexit or trump or um whatever it is um fake news conspiracy theories um scott was talking about some um i know restrictions on social media that they were like deleting some posts the thing is that people who are spreading these um misinfor- this misinformation think that by deleting these that they are actually proving their point they're like look at this read this before they remove it because this is the truth and it's just like should we leave them to do it or should we you know just like not give a damn about what they're saying and just like stop spreading this misinformation um so there is like a lot of things going on um and i cannot see a way of kind um living in peace <laughs> um or just having stable situation neither in the in the UK um sorry guys but neither in the US either anytime soon um i am optimistic but i i'm i'm quite um I don't know. Pragmatically speaking, exactly. it's not happening anytime exactly. soon. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I I would like it to happen, but I do think that in in current society, I I think it would be a great challenge. I I really think we're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> Short term, we're screwed. But hey, this is this is a point I want to just minor point I want to pick up on, because uh, it's very in tune with ITS, right? You can be optimistic about the future, like hey, I think we have the wherewithal to fix this. I think we will fix this. We're not fixing it anytime soon, though, right? Yeah. That's that's being both optimistic and realistic at the same time. Yeah. And those are not mutually that's exclusive, me. right? You can that's be. <laughs> that's good. That's why we have you on. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, I don't know about Scott, but I I think um, I think that's that's pretty on the money. I mean, you you mentioned something there, you know, how people weigh what's happening. You know, like what what's more important to me? And I think a lot of times the world is getting too big and too complex for the average voter, right? For the average citizen to understand well. And governments aren't yeah. necessarily relaying the the most important information or taking into account all sectors of society. You mentioned like free trade in the United States, at least. 
we were like, okay, well, the macroeconomics of this tells us that it's an overall benefit for us. So this is good. Mm. But then we didn't think about, but there are going to be microcosms yeah. where this is bad, right? Like you have entire towns that are built around coal and manufacturing. Um, and if coal and manufacturing are sectors of society that are going to go by the wayside, well, what happens to all of those people? Well, they're going to find some kind of, you know, well, these people destroyed all these jobs. Why can't we bring this back? You know, they want things to return to the way they are, but the world is changing too fast for them to keep up. Um, and so you have parties that are willing to exploit this and say, well, here's a reason why. Here's what's really going on. You and oversimplify all of it. Exactly, because economics is too yeah. big. Economics exactly. is too big for too many people to understand global economics that, you know, for example, in Britain, the the sort of um, UKIP, you know, the UK Independence Party, right, the whole Brexit Independence Party, essentially. Um, and then later on, the uh, the Tories were able to kind of grab onto that and say, hey, um, we can leave and we can have a better economy and we'll have global trade all around the world and it'll be wonderful. Right. So yeah. they kind of did say, you know, we're going to have this free trade, but we're going to do it on our terms. We're going to get out from under Brussels. They're 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 swamping us. They're the ones that are causing all of these problems. And then the thing that people can see and that our people are kind of scared of is just new people. Right. They're used to their town being normal, quote unquote normal. Right. Like having just people that are from Britain, um, you know, the, the British Isles around maybe a couple of people from out of town that's really nice you welcome them to the pub and you hear their stories right but now they've got people that are their next door neighbors who are polish and who are spanish and who are you know there's there's someone from portugal treating them in the hospital yeah um and that's scaring people because the, it's new and what's new and unexplored often scares people so i'm but curious you know to hear what, what? Scott's version I, I do sorry no, yeah sorry i do think that um i've been actually talking with with my manager um, we had an interesting conversation. He is British. Um, and he, I've never, th I never thought about it, but it's actually interesting way of thinking. So he is saying that the one of the underlying, um, reasons why Brexit actually went through, um, was the fact that, that this, he called it British mentality that is still in um colonialism mm. mentality so it's basically we were rulers of the world and now we have to obey <laughs> to someone in brussels like why would we do that we are britain we can do i mean we can do whatever we want on our own terms and now what is happening literally a few days after brexit i mean i'm hoping that that will change um but many countries many countries many international companies are saying um, we are delivering our goods to everywhere except the UK. Um, how are we going to deal with that? <laughs> um, I really don't know. I really don't know what's the plan. I don't know if they thought it through. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just a mess. It's just a mess. And I think that, you know, it, it's interesting to think that the one of the reasons might actually be you know what we're we're great britain like why would we you know why would we be part of the eu um and other people who might have some power to influence other people are exploiting that and that feeling of patriotism in sense that like we are kind of you know we're british and 
Nobody can tell us what to do. Um, and now here we are. And there are thousands and thousands of people who came to the country. Um, they don't know what's going to happen with the with their immigration status. Um, I'm not sure how you know people will get settled or pre-settled state status or um, they would need to go back or you know I mean I, I really don't know how everything's going to go but many many lives are going to be affected and I think we should we'll keep an eye on it. Well Scott as someone who's familiar with both sort of mainland Europe and um sort of the the motherland if you will um <laughs> uh the the actual the, the the british isles um what's your take on all of this is there sort of a lingering we are an empire mentality to overcome like what's what's really possible for britain to do versus what feels possible still yeah i mean i won't i won't say that's not a factor because i think it's fairly it's fairly obvious that it is you hear people that call in on radio shows and and just you know talk talk whenever whenever there's a microphone put in someone's face you'll hear that <laughs> you'll hear that um so yeah I, I can't deny that that's definitely a factor but the the phrase that often gets sort of like thrown around in the UK uh to capture that feeling is delusions of grandeur um which I don't necessarily like I mean I I think it's accurate but I I, I prefer to just call it populism because in my mind that's that's really what it is and it's just the British iteration of an ideology or a way of thinking that we see take hold in many other countries that we were just talking about the erosion of US relations with Mexico and that I think at least in my view has been born out of an American iteration of populism we are going to sort out our southern border and they are going to pay for it that's that's essentially the same attitude that we're discussing here on Brexit Um, however much it actually captures the national imagination you have to look at the polls and you have to look at the stats. Um, I definitely think it exists. But um, I think that I'll get on to one interesting tidbit of, of, of Brexit in a moment, which is Gibraltar. Um, it, it's such a small factor in this equation, but I think it's really important. But before that, we were talking about um, how, you know, it was it seemed to have people wading into these problems without really having a, a clear understanding of what the consequences might be and um social media again was mentioned and i think it's 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 something that i talk too much about so please stop me if i if i if i take up too much time on it, but, <laughs> but it I, I that's what this podcast is for well i mean i really i really i really think that um social media is i wouldn't say it's the root of of this problem but i think it's a i think it's a major player at the very least um and the reason i say that is because at least in the uk i I wouldn't speak for you know the, the regulation of the media or the regulation of information in the United States. It's a, it's a vastly different um, situation there. Um, but in the UK, the media has been fairly robustly regulated for quite some time. Um, if you look at national broadcasters, they have to answer to an organization called Ofcom, which is basically the Office for Communications. And they they sort of keep in line the the goal of objectivity, whether or not it actually gets realized is another question or debate, but at least there is, there is an ideal here for broadcasters and the, 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 the biggest national platforms to pursue neutrality and objectivity and fairness. That seemed to work for all intents and purposes fairly well um, before social media. And then social media came <laughs> along and obviously social media is not 
is not from a regulatory perspective equivalent to say the BBC or ITV or Channel 4 or any other major outlet in the UK um, but they collate far more information they demand far much more attention from the average British voter these days than let's say the BBC website or any newspaper which answers to another organization not Ofcom but regardless um, so what I think we're seeing um, as a symptom which is the symptom of, of polarization and embracing misinformation and, and, and people becoming just more vulnerable to misleading points of view is actually a byproduct of a problem that we're now sort of becoming more aware of, which is that social media is essentially becoming mainstream media. And I'm not talking about actual pre-existing mainstream media organizations having Twitter feeds. I'm not talking about articles from the BBC winding up on your Twitter feed. I'm talking about people that are not regulated or organizations that are not regulated by Ofcom that are replacing in many senses these stalwarts of, of the media in the UK. And given that we're no longer playing by the same rules or adhering to the same standards, the quality of information flow has decreased significantly. So I think that that is a major issue. And I think the onus should be on social media, um, particularly Twitter, but also Facebook and well, Facebook. Those are the two biggest problems, I think. Yeah, <laughs> Facebook and Twitter. There are fringe ones, of course, but these two are the, the biggest players. Well, of course, Facebook owns Instagram. So you just covered WhatsApp and Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, I, I think in terms in terms of um, actual sort of user experience, Twitter and Facebook must. Have, I don't have the data on this other way, but I think it is not an exaggeration. I think to it's say, safe to say, yeah, that, yeah, that they they capture most of people's social media traffic, um, and until they until we ask them to start behaving like the media institutions that they're essentially becoming, this problem is going to persist. Um, and people can agree or disagree with that. I suppose it's a it's a it's an opinionated perspective, but I think that that is the root of the problem or a large factor of the problem, as I said. Um, and that has no doubt had an impact on on Brexit and our attitudes to Brexit and our ability to hold the government to account um, about what it's going to do. But then moving on to something that I think is really important to discuss with Brexit um, is Gibraltar. In 2016, for those who, in all fairness, probably don't know. Um, Gibraltar, vote, uh, Gibraltar <laughs> voted in overwhelming majority of our... Third. Gibraltar is south of Spain, for our, for all of our international yeah. listeners who may not know. <laughs> yeah, we, we, um, yeah, we're a British overseas territory. We're literally at the southern tip of Europe. Um, I, can, I, I can literally look out the window and see Spain right from my house. Not that I can enter right now, but... Um, <laughs> um, but uh, what was I going to say? I've lost my train of thought. So yes, in, when the referendum came and went, um, we voted in uh, an overwhelming majority. Ninety-six percent of us voted to remain in the European Union. Um, that is a greater vote either for remain or leave from any constituent in the mainland UK by a mile. Um, and up until just a few days ago, we were concerned that we were going to have to suffer a very hard Brexit and crash out with that deal. It turns out, miraculously in many ways, that we have managed to negotiate entry into the Schengen zone, um, which has been received really, really positively in Gibraltar, obviously, because we voted 96% to remain in the European Union. In some perverse way, we've actually ended up arguably even further embedded in Europe than we were before the referendum took place. And I didn't wake up expecting that a week ago. Um, so that that's something that is going to be really interesting to look at for the next four years because Gibraltar has obviously a very um, there is a there is a, a 
a, a very deep Spanish influence to this place because we're just by virtue of proximity, we're right here, but we're very proud to be British. Um, and we identify with Britain a lot. We share a lot, obviously, with the UK. And when we see how there's going to be such a stark difference between living in the UK, I'll be moving to London as soon as I'm allowed to, and what life is going to be like here in Gibraltar, it's going to be such a stark contrast. Um, and really, Gibraltar, all it is, is the UK with better weather. I mean, legally. It's, you know, <laughs> so, so it's it's it's, uh, it's going to be really, really interesting to observe that. One thing that if anybody is interested to dive a little bit deeper into the Gibraltar issue, in order to sort of facilitate this expansion of the Schengen zone, what we're doing is allowing a European border agency, which is called Frontex, to manage the border. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. So this is a bit of an, on, uh, an odd situation to get your head around, because obviously via the Schengen zone that we're essentially borderless at this moment, but um, or once that comes into force, we'll be essentially borderless. But um, there will be certain things that need to be looked at and maintained between Gibraltar and Spain as separate jurisdictions. So, for example, if there's a person trying to cross from a third from a third country or for from a, you know, as in a non-EU member state or non-Schengen zone country, uh, a third country like, say, Russia, or if there's someone who's got a European arrest warrant to their name, these things have to be checked, obviously. Um, and usually what happens there is the national police force that is the relevant authority will be doing that sort of thing. So in Spain's in instance, that would be an organization called the Guardia Civil. Gibraltar and Spain have got a lot of controversy surrounding Gibraltar's sovereignty. Spain claims Gibraltar for itself. We say no. It's a long story. And it's a source of really massive political tension. And something that the European Union has done, which I think it's to its credit, it's sort of stepped in and said, instead of potentially fanning these flames of controversy that surround Gibraltar sovereignty, we're going to use a separate entity, this European border agency called Frontex, to solve that border question, at least for the next four years. Now, after four years, we don't know if Frontex will continue its contract to look at that border. Um, if it does, there is already concern here in Gibraltar that Frontex employees will be Spanish nationals because that's how deep this thing runs. Um, so that, I think, is going to be overlooked by many people in the UK and fairly inevitably because, you know, I'm not blind to the fact that are so small. Um, but it's nevertheless going to be a really, really interesting facet of Brexit that we should pay attention to now and importantly in four years' time. Um, so yeah, we'll have to see. No, I agree. I, I think, I mean, it's interesting. You normally hear Frontex with, you know, like issues of, uh, you know, migration from across Africa into, mm. you know, Italy, yeah. for example. Yeah. Um, and the kind of yeah. border questions that have surrounded that and should we, should Frontex take on a, a sort of greater mandate and be a sort of more national, uh, sort of, if you will, like national guard, um, like the US has, but for all of Europe. Mm -hmm. Um and, you know, historically putting deadlines on things like this works remarkably well because the world really prepares for it. Um, you know, for example, <laughs> Hong Kong, the whole world was ready for that. They had 99 years, uh, quite literally, uh, to prepare for that. And it, it went swimmingly um, <laughs> uh, in the sense that you kind of felt like everybody was tossed overboard. Um, so I think that kind of puts a wrap on um, looking at a couple of things. Of course, 2020 was much bigger um than than anything else unfortunately we couldn't bring on anybody to talk about i mean just the 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 riptide of things that happened all across asia um from of course wuhan uh, where the virus got started and the whole controversy around you know china and the misinformation that went along 
Um, with that, the U.S.-China relations being really tense for a good long period of time because of uh, the Trump's administration's insistence on calling it the China virus. We almost went to war with North Korea again. Um, Kim Jong-un disappeared. 20, yeah, I, I mean, the the world in 2020 was it extremely seemed, complicated. It seems, it seems that the Iran thing was literally like five years ago, but it was literally like, what, last gen? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. E- exactly. I mean, Australia burned to the ground um, last January as well. And, you know, just the amount of things that there are, we would need a whole month, maybe two months of podcasts just to cover everything that happened in 2020. But we're it's not going to do that because we are looking, <laughs> we are looking to the future. <laughs> so we're going to keep talking about these things. We're going to keep writing about these things and the impact of you just the, the legacy of 2020, I'm sure we'll be all telling our grandkids like we survived it um, if for no other reason than to sort of calm our ourselves from the, the PTSD that I'm sure we'll all have. <laughs> but um, what are you guys looking most forward to in 2021? We're going to do a kind of lightning round, maybe five minutes on this. Um, what are the things to kind of be looking at besides, um, you know, sort of the the future relationship with Brexit. I think we covered that fairly well. Uh, what are you guys looking forward to? What are the big, biggest issues or conflicts or most un- overlooked conflicts or issues in 2021? I'm going to say mine. Mine is climate change. I think the world started 2020 so excited and ambitious, like, hey, this is going to be the year. This will be the decade, in fact, when we really start to tackle climate change. Um, and I think we've definitely had that whole stride interrupted. Um, but what do you guys think? No one's excited for anything. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I second the climate change, particularly just because, you know, younger generations are so gung-ho and they're so, you know, on top of advocating for it. And that's definitely something to look forward to, hopefully. Um, but I'm also really (laughs) interested in... (laughs) And just how the United States in particular, um, but also like other countries address migration on a more global scale, simply because as climate change disasters occur more frequently, you know, migration and, you know, the surge of internationally displaced people is just increasing tremendously, um, you know, globally and seeing how those two are tied together, which then impacts public health systems and the pandemic and lockdowns and restrictions, all of it is so tied together. Um, but how we treat and address migration-related issues um, as a cohesive international community, which will probably be very difficult, um, is something that I'm particularly looking forward to in terms of progression and positive change. Um, but trying to remain realistic about the subject as well um, and you know how that will, will appear going forward. I would say I, I would pay close attention to um, women and um, the impact that all this madness has had on us, um, primarily including the obviously increase in domestic violence during um, the lockdown months. Mm. Um, yeah. But then at the same time, um, I'm actually really, really focused on resilience. Um, and I truly believe because it has been proven that after great disasters or conflicts, war or anything like that, we always kind of find the inner strength um, to come back on our feet. And I'm really interested to see, 
you know, maybe more women in politics um, since we've seen that we've dealt pretty well where, where we were ruling. We dealt pretty well with things. Uh, so maybe we set an example. Maybe more people will be open to it. Um, but even on more local level, I think that um, women creating um, support groups um, for um I don't know, domestic violence or sexual violence or uh, whatever it is, uh, just watching that space, um, how it creates resilience and how it reflects the the agency of women um, who has been through some pretty bad things um, in, in the last year or so. Hopefully this is going to be our year. <laughs> I would tack on to that even. I mean, you did you wrote a wonderful piece for for ITS uh just a couple of months ago uh looking at northern Uganda and kind of the the effect that women yeah. had there as well. We we have not I mean, I say we didn't address it. We didn't manage to get to Asia this podcast at all. We haven't mentioned Africa either. And as much mm. as we're all kind of dealing with the coronavirus pandemic here, you know, Africa kind of caught on later and now it's it's definitely going through the throes as we yeah. we run into 2021 and it'll be interesting to see the impact that you know numerous conflicts from you know the questions of uh just that the rising tensions and and conflict in ethiopia right now to the the questions about the conflict over the you know egypt and and sudan yeah um and the uh the sort of the river um allocation of resources that all ties together right you know water is really the prime mm. resource in the world um yeah. fresh water that is and moving forward it'll be interesting to see how you know the effects of not only women in politics but women on the ground um especially in africa you know how that that plays into questions of development and sustainability so exactly. i'm crediting you with all of that ideas by the way because these are all things that you've said to me before thank so thank you <laughs> <laughs> i just thank felt like definitely you. also mentioned that <laughs> I have two things and they're pretty unrelated. Um so one is um I'm interested to see what happens in 2021 as it relates to debt relief in um in Africa and other developing um parts of the of the world. That's um there's a lot of stuff going on right now in terms of um you know the the potential for debt relief with some of the more um kind of tricky economic situations um that a number of developing countries have kind of found themselves in um this year um or i guess in 2020 and um kind of looking at that how that shapes um relations between china and and you know a lot of the countries in the global south as well as um you know with multilateral institutions like the world bank imf um the other thing is um domestic u.s political um i'm very curious to see and we'll we'll know pretty soon what the senate is going to look like in terms of whether or not oh yeah it's going to be a, a democratic um senate or republican senate but i'm really curious to see if it is a democratic senate um they're voting today does the biden at yeah does the biden administration um prioritize um in my view, what are like kind of some of the pressing more democratic reforms, lower, lowercase d democratic reforms in the U.S. that I think are kind of first like first principle or, or first steps that are needed um, to kind of reduce gridlock and and kind of move towards a more functioning political system. So, you know, things like, um, you know, 
uh, gerrymandering, mm-hmm. uh, election reform, um, voting rights, stuff like that. Um, I think that those those things are. It'll be interesting to see whether or not those get prioritized um, in the first year, um, because I think that that's that's one thing that will you know have a chance of happening under a Democratic Senate. It definitely won't happen if if McConnell's uh, running the Senate. I mean, for sure. I would just add there too that that's we we should say if it's a Democratic Senate when we're saying that we're just saying that there's a Democratic tiebreaker for a, a split Senate 50-50. If both Democratic candidates win in the Georgia uh, Georgian special election here, then it'll be 50 Democratic senators of varying political stripes from, you know, sort of center left all the way to, you know, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Um, but then you also have uh, 50 fairly significantly conservative senators, I'd say. I mean, the last... The last four years did prove that there are few center-right senators in the Senate right now. I mean, you've got, you know, maybe one or two who broke with the rest of the Republican Party on occasion, but there's definitely still a very strong... I mean, there's the old saying, right? Uh, Democrats fall in love and Republicans fall in line. Um, so you have, you know, very passionate sort of democratic politics, um, which often causes division, which we're seeing before Biden even gets office. Um, and then you've got sort of this Republican party that finds itself divided between the sort of never Trumper crowd that's, that's getting louder. You've got the Lincoln project talking, um, still, you know, moving forward plans for, um, you know, working with, uh, if you will, establishment or center centrist Republicans. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I agree with you, Liam, that's, probably the biggest question that's going to determine what actually happens in terms of domestic change in the U.S. It's going to be what turns out tonight. And Scott? Yeah, um, I think for me, I would like to see, if I was sort of to whittle it down to one all-encompassing wish, I would like to see a return or an increase in political rationality. And what I mean by that is not Sometimes that just means like intelligence. People misunderstand that to mean like intelligence. That's not by any means what I mean. What I mean is approaching politics and political issues, however controversial they are, with less emotion and more clear thinking um, and analysis. And I think that's something that we can all adopt as a personal goal. I think that everybody can improve on that every day. Um, and I think that if we don't get a hold on that, then some of the subjects that we've discussed in this podcast um, will continue to, you know, burden us into 2021. And if we look at every single wish that we've got for 2021, be it on debt relief in the developing world or domestic violence or climate change, these are all tasks that require cooperation and they require um, teamwork and clear thinking and if we are continued to be burdened by polarization and misinformation and emotional thinking and this sort of framework of us versus them then unfortunately i don't think a lot of progress will be made so i think that that for me is something that i would like to see across the board in the states in the uk and everywhere else that we haven't had the time to mention obviously um i think that that i think that will be 
uh, a really clear sign as to whether or not we'll get a hold on the pandemic and 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 on everything else really that we've discussed and anything else that might come away in 2021 that we don't yet know about so i think that that's important <laughs> i think that's very important yeah. oh that's definitely the sentiment um well that, that's that's actually kind of arousing like that's something to put in your uh, news resolutions right stop yelling at people on social media <laughs> It's yeah, not essentially. Really helping. And I and I, I don't I don't mean to sort of imply to target one one political camp here. I think it's something that everybody can 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 work towards. And if we all improve, then I think political dialogue will improve and our chances of solving these problems by default will improve. So yeah, that's definitely what I would sort of wish for. Right, well hopefully come Christmas next year. <laughs> we can actually <laughs> we can actually um kind of give you some of that right like look what we accomplished this last year there's at least five people <laughs> who have <laughs> stopped yelling so much online we'll come back here this day next year and have a review <laughs> oh boy well I'm you know like those you we'll know, have to like set those, up a tracker um, like those billy eilish interviews every year <laughs> oh, we can do that <laughs> that's the one Oh, what was your um, favorite crazy funny thing though that happened? Well, let's, I mean, there's so much negative going on in the world, and we're trying to be optimistic here. Let's let's close out on a positive note. What's one positive thing that wasn't like the reversal of a negative thing? <laughs> no, but what was one positive thing that happened in 2020? Maybe two surprise Taylor Swift albums. <gasps> yes, that's actually. You know what? We can say that's fine. Yeah, I agree with that. No, actually, and I'm not even a huge Taylor Swift listener, but I that was still still welcome. Is there a name for like a Taylor Swift fan? Like, are you like a, a Swifty? A, a Swifty? Oh my god, is that actually a, <laughs> is thing? That a thing? Yeah, I wouldn't call myself that. <laughs> is that a oh thing? God. Is that an actual thing? That's amazing, actually. Wow. I was gonna say that for all of the negative talk about social media and misinformation, this year has been a really great way in which social media has brought people together and i would say resilient is a really good mm. word to describe this past year um not only like personally but as like a community you know people around the world through you know social media apps like tiktok for example like the amount of support that students who are struggling through online classes and you know are have been thrown into you know situations that are not necessarily beneficial to them just because of lockdown measures and such the amount mm. of support that people have found online myself included has just been tremendously enlightening and really you know it's just a really positive light in a year that has had a lot of you know bad events occur and so social media is very dangerous and can you know contribute to a lot of negative things but on the other hand it's been a really positive light and opportunity for people to not only showcase their creativity but really connect with other people around the world and be like hey this year sucks but i'm you know we're all going through it together and i'm here for you and you know we can have a dialogue about what's going on and just really humanize the other issues that people are facing and so that has been really you know uplifting just on a smaller scale you know for people around the world not just in a particular country i'd say it's not as like talked about but I think it's maybe a bigger scale. I'm going to, I'm going to say, yeah, that's definitely something that <laughs> I feel like that has a lot more impact than maybe we realize sometimes. Cause well, not only like socially, but like the amount health, of, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, socially. And, you know, in terms of actual support for 
real issues, but also just how much education was happening on platforms like TikTok. Like people didn't know about how important the elections in Georgia are, how much, you know, Stacey Abrams contributed to success there. And people were educating others online as things were happening in real time. And so it was also a platform to just gain more knowledge about certain political issues, not only in the United States, but elsewhere. And so that was also a great thing to see in terms of how many people are becoming more interested and how many of the, you know, how many people of the younger generations are becoming interested in these issues as they occur and looking to like the future long-term, you know, perspective on things. Anita? I knew you were going to say me. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm literally sweating Well, you had this face like, I still have no idea what to say. Um, and I was like, well, no, I mean, might, the, maybe the I'm wor- mistaken. No, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, d- there there have been some good things. Um, so, I mean, primarily um, in my personal life, um, where I decided to ditch my job um, and create my own thing. Um, which is a social enterprise that I literally got incorporated today. Uh, and I got hey, also... congratulations. <laughs> Yay. Um, and, um, I also wrote my notice letter today and I said, and I'm literally just going full in, <laughs> full on with this. Um, so yeah, let's see, um, how that goes. Uh, I might beg you for a job later on. <laughs> <laughs> later on, so, sometime this year. Um, but yeah, uh, I think that um, COVID-19 has put me in a place where I just realized that many things can be done online and that that reconfigured my way of how I see work um, and how I see you know, being paid per hour and being paid per the outcome you actually deliver. Um, and those are my ideas that I've been thinking about a lot. Um, and I finally found courage um, to put that in place and uh, incorporate everything that I would like to see with many other employers. Um, so... You know, if you want to work for me. <laughs> We're talking in very vague terms. Yeah. I know. But that's I know, awesome, but though. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna hear about it soon. Hopefully. <laughs> Scott. Let me think. Well, I mean, okay, there's one. There's a massive one for me. Our friends across the pond might not even know this happened, but Liverpool won the Premier League in England, and that is a massive deal for me. Um, that is literally something that's a lot more superficial than the last things that we've heard (laughs) I'm not following this well but that that was something that I've waited for literally my whole life Um, so to see it happen this year in the midst of a pandemic was was something um, and something I'll never forget so that was pretty cool Um, on a deeper more personal level um, I managed to sort of get a foothold in London this year amidst the pandemic as well Um, I finished my MA, I got a job and I found a flat in London, which is things that six months ago I didn't know I would necessarily be able to do because of everything that was going on around me. Um, so, yeah, I actually just, um, I thought about this over over the new year period where I was like, well, I feel like I've managed to lay a bit of a foundation in London now. And, you know, 
2020 sort of took us all by surprise. I mean, who really woke up on the January 1st, 2020 and thought, <laughs> I'm going to really get prepared for a pandemic? No one did that. So, um, yeah. you know, I feel like now we Well, can one doctor of... did that and he didn't make it, <laughs> we can unfortunately. All... As dark we... as that is. Yeah. But we can all, I think, now look towards 2021 with a little bit more of an informed perspective and be like, I sort of yeah. know what's coming, or at least I can think I yeah. know what's coming. Um, and you can build on everything that you did in 2020. So that's something that I think we should all keep keep in the front of our minds, really. Yeah. No, I definitely agree. I think the resilience point has been great. Speaking of launching enterprises, resilience and personal goals and all this kind of stuff, my big one really for 2020, besides the climate change um, as being a significant thing that everybody at least kind of got on board with saying we really do need to address this, was that the international? Sorry, the international scholar relaunched, guys. <laughs> April twenty twenty. Yeah. I know it feels like two years ago, but <laughs> we guys. I've been. I mean, I didn't know two of you at least um, until later on in in this last year, um, and it's been a wonderful, just absolutely inspiring thing to see everybody get together and and do so much amazing things. So many amazing things. Diana will criticize me if I don't use proper grammar. Um, in amidst the pandemic, right? I mean, everybody at ITS, I mean, I've, I've spoken to all of you and you guys have all had lots of different things going on in your personal life, um, challenges to overcome, you know, whether they were related to COVID or, you know, just employment or just the sort of stress or worry about family members and everything else that's happened this year, but we're still kicking and we're actually approaching 2021 well, I say approaching. We're in 2021 now, and we're firing <laughs> see, on all it cylinders. It feels like it didn't end. <laughs> it does Honestly. feel like it didn't end. Well, we've got lots of more interesting and amazing content to bring to you guys in 2021 and beyond. So, uh, for now, um, it's goodbye from myself in Cincinnati, Ohio, Anita in London, Scott in Gibraltar, Liam in, <laughs> in an undisclosed location. <laughs> Two of you. Uh, Liam Kraft uh, in Connecticut and Diana Roy in, in, in central Massachusetts somewhere. That brings us to the end of this week's episode of The World in Perspective. Thank you so much to all of our listeners tuning in around the world. If you enjoyed this episode, please, on whatever platform you're listening on, give us a rating and a review. It really helps us get the word out for the podcast. If you're interested in following Fresh Perspectives, Critical Analyses, and Innovative Solutions from the International Scholar, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. You can also find our website at www.theintlscholar.com. Until next week... Goodbye.